Well, Proverbs chapter 11 is where we're going to begin as we kick off this collection of talks, Pretty Ugly People. And if you have a copy of the scriptures, I want to read to you just one verse from Proverbs 11 that's going to sort of set the tone for our time together this evening. And the title of my message tonight is Angels on the Inside. Angels on the inside. That's as opposed to Angels in the Outfield, a terrific Danny Glover movie uh, from my youth. Angels on the inside. Proverbs 11, verse 22, Solomon writes, as a ring of gold in a swine's snout, or in a pig's nose, as one translation puts it, as a ring of gold in a swine's snout, so is a lovely woman who lacks discretion. One of the things that you hear realtors talk about is curb appeal. Like if you're getting ready to, you know, sell your house, you can find, I'm sure, an HGTV blog, 15 ways to improve your home's curb appeal, right? And that's because when you go around, and of course, these days, it's so different because you can get on, on apps to do this and you know, figure it all out on the, on the phone. And before you ever have to go around, you've already sort of you know, done your homework. Uh, but they, they say that, that many people who are buying a home, they make this, a snap decision about whether they like it or not before they ever get out of their realtor's car, sitting there looking at it. No, we're not going to this one. Next. Next on the list, right? Because they don't like the way the, the home looks from the, the curb. So I guess that's a little intel if you're you know, trying to fix up your home to sell it. Yes, do think about the rooms and getting everything cleaned and streamlined and, and all the rest. But, but go maybe sit in your car in the driveway and try and see it through, through new eyes. What do, I, what do I not see? Because every day I see it, so now it's become blind to me. And because of the curse of knowledge, I can't, I can't even look at it like I don't you know, see it every day, but I, I do. So the curb appeal, right? And that, that sure, surely it's important. Uh, but let's just agree together that it's not the most important thing. Because like from the curb, you can't tell if there's mold. You, you can't tell if there's radon. From the curb, you, you'll have no idea whether the home was built on like an old Indian burial ground. And you know, now there's going to be a curse that's unleashed on your home for you know, however many generations because you built there. I mean, you just never know what things you're trifling with. From the curb, you can't tell if there's rusty pipes or or good or bad plumbing. And this series is uh, an attempt to get better at looking deeper. Because things that are only skin deep are things that you ultimately can't keep. We have to learn uh, to do some relational and personal due diligence to figure out what's really going on. And of course, I mean this romantically. I mean, hello, this week is Valentine's Day, so it's appropriate to be talking about who to be looking for and who to, who to say yes to when they ask you on a date. And you know, as, as we all think about these sorts of things, of course, I do uh, want to apply it this way. And, and I will say that to a, to a large degree, I felt like God really gave me this message to preach specifically this weekend to single people. To those of you who are dating, to those of you who aren't dating but wish you were dating, to those of you who are you know, down the road, you intend to get married. And I really want to speak this to your hearts. And I hope you'll pay attention. Uh, but I would say, if you're married, don't you know, stop listening. Close up your notes. All right, it's for the single people. It's for all the single ladies. <laughs> Too soon. Um, I, this is. This is, uh, of course, going to have application to all of us, both from the perspective that we want to be an encouragement to single people in our lives, to our kids, to our grandkids, to, to people in the church who God's going to put in our, our path to encourage. Uh, but, but also, God's word is so good, he'll hit us even with ricochet shots. And we'll see some application. We're like, dang, good one, God. You know what I'm saying? And uh, he just has his, his ways of, of getting to us exactly what we need to hear. So we want to have ears, ears wide open. Now, that being said, anytime I narrow the focus a little bit and, and say, hey, I'm preaching to the moms this week, or you know, we're, we're going to single out this, this demographic, uh, that, that has a downside. And the, the positive, of course, is I'm hopefully going to give some good intel to those of you who are in a season where you're navigating that difficult terrain. The downside is if you've already passed that season, this can be at times bitter medicine to swallow. 
to hear what I'm saying, you should hopefully be thinking about 16, 13, 17, 19, 25. And to be 55 hearing it is, to some degree, a challenging thing. Because if we could agree, let's agree on this. If we all could go in a time machine and load up and go back to that year, we would love to listen to this message and do those things differently. And so it can almost be like a, uh, like a, a feeling of condemnation. So let me just be clear about something. I didn't come here this week to shame you for your past. I came to fight for your future. And so this, the mentality is not, why didn't you then? It's what can we do now? And where do we go from here? Come on, God is a God of a brighter tomorrow, a great future on the horizon. Dawn is coming. He's got a sunrise for you. So regardless of where you've been and the hard things you've been through, uh, we want to hear this message with a perspective and a heart of hope and a belief that God has our, our best interests at heart. And so we acknowledge the tension. And the tension is, uh, yes, it would be better if you never did make these mistakes. If, if, if your life is wet cement right now and you're looking to the future, you know, and you're like, I've never had a boyfriend, never had a girlfriend, or you know, kind of looking, well, I don't know, I don't know. Listen, I'm going to tell you, hey, it's always better to do things God's way. On the other side of it, if you're like, well, sort of spent two decades not doing things God's way, is there hope for me? Yes, there's always hope for you. Come on, trust God. So that's the tension. And that's, that's, we're comfortable with this tension. But we're not going to not tell the truth to the young people the, because we don't want to you know, make people feel bad who are, who are older. So we're good. But, but I want you to hear uh, both of, of, and not just older. I mean, you could be younger and have made tons of foolish decisions too, right? So I'm not singling out any age. Right? There's, there's all my tap dancing. I've done it all, all right? There's, now I'm like the attorney. I've given you all my fine print. Now I'm just going to tell you what God told me to tell you, all right? So, but here, my, I want you to hear, hear where I'm coming from. Uh, every time I give a message, it feels a little bit sometimes like, oh, this is a little harder message to give, right? I, just could we get back to Jeremiah 29, 11? Like, we're going to get there. But, but, but I also want to preach faithfully what God's laid on my heart. And uh, I wouldn't be a good pastor if I didn't. All right, so, so let's not be pigs with, uh, with nose piercings. There's the sermon. Let's not be nose-pierced pigs. That's amazing. Wrote that down, got it, check. <laughs> Hope you'll come back uh, because... <laughs> Good luck with that. Uh, because as the series progresses, I really got some good stuff. I've got the whole thing kind of mapped out. We're going to be talking about how to develop inner beauty as the weeks go on. We're going to be talking about how to deal with ugly people without becoming ugly yourself. How to not let inner ugliness rub off on you uh, as you have to in situations be around at times, the, 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 the humanity of broken people. Uh, we're going to be talking about how to not be damaged by the ugliness of life. Can we be pretty in spirit even when we deal with ugly situations and circumstances? Uh, that's sort of uh, a roadmap of, of where we're going to go. But we're going to start out here, where we're uh, hoping to uh, understand that what we can see from the curb is not the full story. There is truly a deceptiveness to beauty. When we talk about someone who's physically beautiful, it can be deceptive. In fact, the Bible says that clearly, doesn't it? This is Proverbs 31, 30. It says, charm is, say the next word out loud with me, deceitful. And beauty is passing. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. There's what you can see that can be a lie because it's not the full story from the curb. Dang, girl, right? That's what Proverbs is saying. That's, that's not bad. This isn't a message to shame uh, physically beautiful people. Uh, this is a message to, to say that while it's fantastic, it's not everything. And also to say that it's passing away for all of us, every single one of us. So what's truly important is not just what can be seen with the eyes, what can be posted and get clicks. What, what truly matters is what's inner, what's deep down on the inside. A woman who fears the Lord, a man who fears the Lord, that deserves praise and will get praise forever. All that's glitter isn't gold. As it has been said, um, and well said, to judge a book by a cover is, is a huge mistake with colossal consequences. And yet it's so easy to get hung up on that. 
You know, in the years uh, since I released my first book, I've had a number of aspiring authors, you know, hit me up for advice. Technically, it's consulting, but without <laughs> me getting paid for it, uh, I will just say, uh, hey, uh, they'll say, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, they'll say, uh, you know, how do I get an agent? That's one of the most common questions I get asked. How do I get an agent? The other, the other one is, um, is how do I get a publisher to look at my manuscript? Or, or, and this is the one that always makes me laugh so hard. Um, what marketing advice would you give me? What market, how do I market my book better? And I always, I, 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 they, don't, they, they, they don't call back a second time. Um, <laughs> they'll, they'll say, how do I market my book? And I'll say, honestly, have you written it yet? Because you were doing all your marketing when you were writing it. That's, the, that's real. You can market it all you want, blah, right? The marketing is in the writing. If it's good, people will read it and tell their friends about it. There's your marketing right there. Your best marketing plan, write a good book. People are going to want, oh, bro, dude, oh, my God, you need this, right? Put this in your life and smoke it, right? This, that's, that's good writing. Marketing uh, is, is, is that. So, but then the other one that has it's been a funny little theme has been, you got to talk to me about the cover. What, what are you on the cover? Oh, man, I just want to spang. Woo, ah, right? And, 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 and quite a few people have really, to a large degree, gotten hung up with me on, on cover art as they've asked me, what do you think about this one versus this one? And I'm like, I don't really care about either of them. All right, but just what I, and what I mean by that is, again, the, the cover is fine. And there's, there's, there should be some stopping power if they see it in a store. The most people are buying it digitally, which means they actually have to, have to actually look for it means they got told about it by somebody else who did read it. So at that point, again, we back to the first one, first point, which is write a good book. And, uh, but, but the reality is the, the cover doesn't mean anything if what's inside isn't powerful, isn't vulnerable, isn't helpful, doesn't add value, doesn't add life, right? And so uh, in, in relationships, the same is true. Physical beauty, Proverbs is saying, is like a book cover. OK, cool. Yeah, OK, great. All right, awesome. You're beautiful. That's fantastic. All right, is there anything deeper? Is there anything else happening? The message translation says to, to, uh, to have a, a beautiful face but an empty head, that's a someone who lacks in modesty. That's someone who lacks in discretion. Then there's a deceptiveness to it, something sparkly, something bright. That must be gold, but not always, because it's so easy uh, in this day of filters and Photoshop and spanks, right, to, to look something, but inside to have it be a different story. Leased vehicles, right? You, you, oh, man, look, what a, what a big spender, high roller. Totally broke as a joke. Are you kidding me? This fake life that's being presented. And so there's a deceptiveness to it. So we need to realize that, which makes it the onus is on us. It behooves all of us to, in, in seasons of dating before marriage, do your duty by doing your due diligence. Your duty is to do some serious due diligence before you end up in a situation where you've been deceived by someone's outer appearance. Beautiful, wealthy, whatever, 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 whatever. That You need to go deeper than that. There, there needs to be some due diligence that's done, just like in, a, in buying a home. You, you, yes, do want to uh, have the whole appraisal thing done and, and have an inspection done. That stuff's for sure important. But what about beyond that? What is the inspection not going to tell you? What the neighborhood's like Friday night at 10 o'clock, for example, right? The inspection's not going to tell you there's a neighbor two houses down who invites like 84 friends over and seven beers in, the music goes real loud. And so, so, so coming by not just Saturday morning when your realtor took you by, Come by Friday at 10 o'clock. What is it going to feel like? Is it, can you find a parking space to save your life? So these sorts of things are things that the inspection's not going to tell you, but you have to do your own due diligence. For one thing, you got to read the disclosures. Every state mandates different things that you have to disclose when you sell a house. By law, you have to say, hey, here's some things you need to know. Buyer beware about buying this house. Some states declare you have to disclose if someone's ever died in the home. I don't know if it would make, change you, your mind one way or the other. You're like, oh, so Charles Manson did what here, right? Huh, it's a really, really good deal, maybe for a reason. Oh, no, no, they painted over all that. It's fine now, a new carpet, it's great. You're like, oh, just to figure that out. There's some things that a disclosure will tell you. How about this? Go on the, on the sex offender website. 
just understanding, eyes wide open, what, what's, what was happening in, in the neighborhood where my kids are going to be playing? Who lives here? These are things to be doing before you buy a home. You're, what are you doing? You're just figuring stuff out. You're just doing your homework. We're not saying we're not going to buy it. We just want to go in eyes wide open to figure out. Uh, I, I watched one video on, on YouTube. I was like, 13-point checklist before you buy a house from real estate underscore 777 guy. You know what I mean? It was great. Uh, the things I do for sermon preparation. He, he was saying one thing that is important is to ask, and of course, you want to you know, get approval ahead of time, to see if both your vehicles can fit in the garage. What if your car is too long and you buy this house, first time you drive in, dang it, right? Just little random things that you understand. Uh, similarly, uh, in relationships, there should be some due diligence. That's the purpose of, of that friendship phase. That's, that, that should, as definitely as you get into the dating, where you have a couple dates where you're figuring this out, and, and, and just who are you? That's what you're asking. The, po the point of, of, of the friendship into the dating is like, who are you? Who are you? We're trying to figure this out. And then especially if you're going to move towards marriage, engagement, this is like, hey, Buyer beware, what's going on? Who are you? How do you handle stress? What, what are your go-to coping mechanisms like? Do you have an anger problem? What, how do you handle money? How do you handle authority? What, what's your relationship with your parents like? What's your outlook on sex like? What's your 20-year plan? Like, what do, you, what do you define success as in life? I think to, to honestly tell you the truth, the perfect place that answers all of these checkboxes to let your relationship blossom and grow to fruition would be inside the local church. Name me a better situation with more eyes on uh, your relationship as it unfolds than serving and doing life together within the, within the house, where you have lots of people around you, where hopefully you're serving on a team, where you get to observe them. How are they with kids? Hi, we got kids here. There's some kids. And, and uh, how, how do you handle being told what to do? Our team lead says, got to show up this time, bristling at that. I don't, how, how do you, they handle when they don't get their way? All of these things are a chance to, to get them to oink. You're trying to get them. <laughs> Right? Oh, but you had such a nice ring. It, oh, ah, swine snout. Right? That's, we're in this dating and engagement trying to see what their true colors are. Man, it's, you can suck in for a while, but eventually the gut comes out, baby. Right? That's, that's, the, that's the dating. That's the engagement. You're saying, hey, who are you really? Because I know you, you presented yourself well. Dating is sales. You are selling yourself. Take me, choose me, pick me. So, but what are you getting? This is all of me, honey, right? That's, that's what you're really trying to, trying to figure out, right? They can, they, can, they can try and smell like a sheep all they want, but during the engagement, we got to figure out what makes you oink. That's engagement, which is why, which is why premarital counseling is so important. To me, it would be like trying to fly a helicopter without going to flight school. Just there's a lot of control. That marriage is more complicated than a helicopter. Let me tell you what. And so just jump. We'll figure it out on the way. Oof. Right? You want, you want to understand what the dials are and all these things, and to go into uh, a, a situation where you're with uh, leadership and you're talking about sex, talking about scripture, talking about family of origin, talking about fighting styles, personality, dispositions, all of these sorts of things and seeing where there are red flags and, and getting to handle that and having the opportunity to opt out before you get into a situation where you've got buyer's remorse, where you've got buyer's remorse. I mean, well, I'm, I'm, I'm single and I'm lonely and tempted to lower my standards. Let me tell you something, there's a lot of lonely married people, a lot of lonely married people. And the Bible talks about it being better to go live on the rooftop of a home than dwelling in a house with a contentious person. And so there's a lot of people who end up living in a, a situation where they're, 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 they're frustrated and, and perhaps uh, these, some of these things could have been brought to the surface and exposed and maybe dealt with, maybe not, before it began. Now, some, some hearing this are going, man, you, you're talking about it. this exact same reason why we just decided to move in together. We, man, we, we, don't, we don't know. And our parents both got divorced. And so we just decided we'll have like a, a light marriage, like a starter marriage. We'll just move in and figure it out. And if it works well, then we'll get married. And of course, I would say that I understand that line of thinking. But the truth is that statistics do not bear out that that is a successful strategy. That in the short term, it works. If you live together before you're married, you will have a lower percentage of divorce rate in the first year. But then it spikes after year five. So initially, perhaps you've worked out a couple of the kinks of just the normal toothpaste and toilet paper stuff that would cause fights and friction year one. But long term, it does not help the relationship. 
Furthermore, it perpetuates a state of me trying to, to see if we're compatible. And what is compatible? It's what you're trying to figure out during that dating and engagement phase. So now you've added the sex dynamic, and now you've added the aspect that's supposed to be the, the, the cherry on top of the covenant relationship of marriage, and you're enjoying that without the promise of every other aspect, which is economic unity, which is social unity, financial unity, spiritual unity, and all the emotional aspects of we've come together, we've covenanted together, but cohabitating and saying, we're just going to see if we're compatible, which is code for how long are you going to continue to please me? And the moment you're not, I can walk away. And, and that's not supposed to be when you're enjoying sexuality. It's supposed to be when you've done your are we compatible work, and do, are, are we called together? And is, what does God think? What does our pastor think? What, is, what, is, what are the other people, what are the wise voices in our life think about? Are we, are we, are we honoring God together? Is this, is this doing good or bad? Because the cool thing is when you're within, within a small group and plugged in on a team, as you start dating, people are going, hey, I've noticed you seem more on fire for God as a result of this relationship. Or where have you been? You two, bang, never around anymore. It doesn't seem like you're active and serving. You're blowing off other people in your life because you sort of have pulled away. That's the real litmus test. Does this relationship cause you to grow closer to God or drift further from him? As Jenny and I uh, began to be attracted to one another, we were both serving in the church. And we both together, six months into our friendship, when she finally was allowed to start dating, When we met, she had made a year-long commitment to not date anybody. And I met her halfway through it and had made no such oath. Um, <laughs> so six months was on the clock of just friendship, purely platonic. And, uh, and, but it was actually amazing, because then I was able to ask her to, I asked her to date one day after the six month, I think at midnight on the six month mark. And, but, but what I said was, I want to pursue Jesus and pursue you. And if I get in the way of you pursuing Jesus, I don't, I don't want to be on the picture. And so as we've been uh, seeking Jesus, we're both seeking him, and we're doing so together. And it's bringing us closer to each other. That should be the goal. And people in your life who are trusted voices should be going, that's exactly what's happening. Hooray for you two. As you seek Jesus, you're growing closer to each other. And so that's the hope. And your duty during the dating phase, the friendship phase, hopefully the engagement phase, is to figure those things out. And then when you've covenanted your life together, you promise to come together, you're in a marriage now enjoying sex. And guess what? It's not about I'm going to walk away when I'm not getting my needs met because I'm in this marriage to make sure your needs are met. That's the, the, the spirit of a spouse in the, the marriage phase. And so we get things out of order when we don't do things God's way. So what would be some things you were looking for during our due diligence phase? I would just say we're looking for depth. We're looking for depth to put a, a fine point on it. Because 2 Corinthians 4.16 says that outward attractiveness, beauty, those things are amazing, but we can't hang on to them. They're wasting away. Our bodies are wasting away. From birth to death, we have an expiration date. And our physical beauty cannot help but to some, to some extent lose its luster. As the flower fades, so our bodies do perish. But look what he says. This is, that's the bad news. The good news is, but inwardly, we are being renewed every day. Amen. Our spirits, if we're in Christ, growing in our relationship with Jesus, like a fine wine, just get better with time. So the depth that we're looking for is this maturity, is this, is this um, well, Paul put it this way, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Those things age really well. And I'm telling you something. When you find that in someone, there's a kindness, there's a gentleness, a job doesn't hurt. All, all these things <laughs> are, are just, just get better and just blossom. And you're like, yeah, I know what you're saying, but oh, she's so hot. I'm telling you, there's nothing hotter in worship. That, that's just something white hot when you see someone who's passionate about Jesus, responsibility and strength, someone who's kind and isn't focused on themselves. Those things, those, those are just better and better and then better. All right, so there's a danger too. Charm and beauty are deceptive, so we got to do our duty. If we don't, what we're going to see is something that God doesn't want us to experience, and that is that the person we shouldn't be with is going to impact us negatively. 
That's the danger of choosing the wrong person. That's the danger. Let's, let's broaden it. The danger of having the wrong people at the key seats at the table of your life. The key seats at the table of your life. The person you go to, the person you run to, the person who you're constantly in communication with. These are the people that are helping you steer. And what does scripture say? Bad company corrupts good character. It's not an if, it's a when and to what extent. You will be impacted, you will be influenced by the people who are the key voices in your life. And no one's a more key voice than your romantic choice. So the person you date, the person you end up marrying, this, like no other relationship on earth is going to impact your life. Why? Because it's uh, your heart's involved. And scripture says, out of your heart flows every issue of life. So if you're like, well, I love God and I'm serious about God, this is completely separate. Wrong. It involves your heart. So it's going to impact every other area of your life. As an example of this, this week, God put on my heart as I was studying and preparing, actually from the very beginning of the series, the biblical story of Ahab and Jezebel. They're the ultimate quintessential cautionary tale. Uh, Ahab was the king of Israel. So this is the man responsible for leading this nation. He's supposed to be like a shepherd. I mean, he had David's job high, right, to think about that. And, uh, and so he's meant to shepherd and lead God's people, but he made a tragically horrific choice of a spouse. He married the princess of the Sidonian king, Ethbaal. Now, Ethbaal has within his name the pagan god Baal, or Baal, as he's often called. This, this deity of another nation worshipped in, in perverse ways with ritualistic prostitution and child sacrifice and, and, and sorcery. And so Ethbaal's little girl, Jezebel, uh, was apparently beautiful. And so Ahab had to have her and fell in love with her and married her. And her uh, influence on him was, by default, something that impacted the entire nation of Israel to a degree that it caused Israel to sink to the lowest of its nearly its entire history. In fact, uh, as we read the story, as it's put in 1 Kings chapter 16, uh, verse 19, and we're just going to kind of fly through an overview of, of what happened as, as he chose this girl. It says in verse 31, and as though it were not enough to follow the sinful example of Jeroboam, a king before him who was also not so great, he married Jezebel, the daughter of King Ethbaal of the Sidonians. And he began, Ahab, to bow down in worship of Baal. First, he built a temple and an altar for Baal in Samaria. Then he set up an Asherah pole. I think they had one of those at the Super Bowl. Uh, he did more <laughs> to provoke the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than any of the other, I'm joking, of the other kings of Israel before him. All right, so Ahab chose to follow a girl who was given over to a false god. And surprise, surprise, he ended up given over to a false god. Now, you know, you're like, what about missionary dating? What about where you, you date someone so you can save them? Date someone so you can reach them? Hey, listen, I know a really big God who can save uh, anybody on this planet without you compromising, OK? So he, he, he doesn't need you making a bad relational choice to impact that person. Because uh, the person who's trying to pull you down has gravity on their side. It is much easier to be pulled down than to pull someone up. And so what happened to, to Ahab in, in a gr dramatic, grotesque way happens in miniature any time we make a bad relational decision. And so he ends up doing all this. Uh, and, and God warned them again and again and again. Sent Elijah. Hey, it's not going to rain till I say it will, to get their attention. The rain was a picture of God's blessing. Oh, by the way, Baal's name or Baal's name was the, the god of thunder, right? He was the god of rain clouds. And, and, and so God was you know, saying, like, hey, he's emasculated. He can't do what his number one thing is to do when Elijah cut the rain off. So God tried to get Baal's, uh, or uh, Ahab and Elijah's, uh, Jezebel's attention. And, and time after time after time, God, God gave them the opportunity. Uh, Baal was shown to be powerless on Mount Carmel. Which God answers by fire. Sacrifices were set up. Prophets of Baal cut themselves. I mean, la, la, la. And, and, and Elijah was just calm. God, go ahead. Turn the hearts of your people back towards you. 
boom, fire from heaven. And uh, so over and over again, uh, Ahab and Jezebel were given the opportunity to turn from their sinful ways, and they rejected it, rejected it, rejected it, rejected it. So finally, enough was enough. Uh, it ironically came after a relatively small incident in comparison to some of their other crimes. I mean, literally, Jezebel rounded up and killed every prophet of God she could get her hands on, made it illegal to worship the God of the Bible. Everyone had to worship Baal in Israel, right? But then one day, <laughs> this is so funny, Ahab woke up and he's like, oh, that's a great vineyard. I want they could see this vineyard from his palace. And he's like, I want that vineyard. He was like, like collecting trains. And you know, just like, you see him, it's like this like, pampered little existence. He's like, I want that vineyard. So he goes down and is like, hey, Naboth, can I buy your vineyard? And Naboth's like, no, nah, man, it's not for sale. And Ahab's like, oh. I wanted a vineyard. And he went home pouting and sulking. And the Bible says he laid down on his bed facing the wall and wouldn't get up and wouldn't eat. He was so sad. He was sulking. He wouldn't tell me. So Jezebel comes home and goes, what's the matter, Ahab? And he's like, he wouldn't tell me the vineyard. I really wanted it. He's like wearing silk pajamas. I, wouldn't, I really wanted it. I just wanted that vineyard so bad. And just, oh. And she goes, what's the matter, baby? Why don't we just kill him? And then if, if we just kill him, then you can have the vineyard. And he's like, would you do that for me? And she's like, I will. And so then she. <laughs> She arranges for, for Naboth to get killed. And then Ahab's so excited. He's like, yay, vineyard for me, Naboth's vineyard time. So he runs down, gets the vineyard. And God's like, OK, enough's enough. These two are done. And so he sends uh, one of his, his ministers to give them the announcement that they're both going to die. And in fact, he tells uh, Jezebel exactly where she's going. You're going to be killed in Jezreel, and the dogs are going to eat your bones. And Ahab, you're going to die, and, and dogs are going to lick up your blood. And they both laughed it off and didn't take it seriously and continued to persist in their wickedness and persist in their iniquity. And guess what? God's prophecy came to pass precisely. In fact, in, um, now we're in 1 Kings 22. It says, in a battle where Ahab had come out scot-free, someone at random drew his bow and hit the king of Israel between the sections of his armor. The guy wasn't even aiming. He was like, ah, shot it up. And Ahab's like, I'm the best. I got a vineyard. And, and the arrow just <laughs> bang, right between the chink in his armor. And he was mortally wounded. So he told his chariot driver, wheel around and get me out of the fighting. I've been wounded. All day long, the battle raged. And the king was propped up in his chariot, facing the Arameans. The blood from his wound ran onto the floor of the chariot. And that evening, he died. As the sun was setting, a cry spread throughout the entire army, every man to his town, everyone to his land. So the king died, was brought to Samaria, and they buried him there. They washed the chariot out at a pool in Samaria, in parentheses, where the prostitutes bathed, and the dogs licked up the blood as the word of the Lord had declared. How crazy is it? Now, what's really interesting about this is that uh, the massive characteristic of Jezebel's influence on Ahab and thus on the entire country was, according to Jehu, the, the man who would take the throne later, whorings, this is 2 Kings 9.22, whorings and sorceries. As I told you, Baal was worshipped in a way that involved prostitutes and witchcraft. So how interesting that his blood ran into the bathing of the prostitutes that he had, through Jezebel's influence on him, brought into the land as his blood was looked up in command uh, from the word of the Lord. You should see some of your faces right now. You're like, wow, this is taking a very dark and surprising turn, right? God bless you. Have a great week. All right, so, so Jezebel's death is all that remains. I should tell you that after Ahab dies, she assumes the role of the queen mother. And she uh, had a very strong way of commanding weak men. So first Ahab, and then uh, her son after Ahab, again, was a, like this puppet king. And she was continuing to pull the strings from the shadows. And, uh, and God you know, took down her son. And so she's all that's left. And guess where she went to? The city where God said she was going to die. It says, this is how stupid she is. Then <laughs> her husband's been killed exactly like God said. Her son gets killed. And so she goes to Jezreel, which is where the prophecy said she would die. And then what was going to eat her bones? Dogs. When Jezebel heard about it, that Jehu was coming to kill her after he killed her son, she painted her eyes, arranged her hair, and looked out of a window. <laughs> she got her, her nose ring on. But this is all she, this is her go-to, because this is what to her everything is, how I look. And she's thinking probably, I could seduce him. 
I could seduce Jehu. It worked on Ahab. I've got my looks. My hair's all done did. I got my nails done. I'm ready to impress, dressed to the nines. But guess what? Didn't work. Jehu entered the gate, verse 31. And uh, verse 32, he looked up to the window and called out, who's on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked down at him from above. They're like, we're on your side. She's crazy. I could smell crazy on her, right? <laughs> you don't know what we've been through working for her. And so verse 33, he said, throw her down, Jehu said. So they threw her down. And some of her blood spattered the wall and the horses as they trampled her underfoot, as, as it would happen, right? And verse 34, Jehu went in and ate and drank, because there's nothing that causes you to work up such a good appetite as driving your chariot over a crazy queen. And it says, he then said, take care of that cursed woman and bury her, for she was a king's daughter. Notice he didn't say she was the king's wife or the king's mother. Because where everything went wrong was where Ahab chose to marry the wrong king's daughter. So he still sees her there where she should have remained in the land of the Sidonians, where she had no business bringing her Baal worship and her evil, ugly heart of darkness into this situation. And Ahab, of course, is not without fault. But we cannot help seeing in Scripture that her influence on him altered the outcome of his life. Because the Bible tells us clearly in sort of the obituary of this evil couple, verse 25 of 1 Kings 21, no one else ever sold himself so completely to do what was evil in the Lord's sight as Ahab did under the influence of his wife Jezebel. So he's to blame because no one ever did so much evil in God's sight as king, but he did so under the influence of his wife, Jezebel. So the people we bring into our lives will influence the outcome of our lives. And as Thomas Hobbes put it, hell is truth seen too late, where we don't see until after the honeymoon phase, where we don't see until after the goosebumps subside, where we don't, we don't see until after the sparks have faded away, and now it's reality. The gifts have been opened. Uh, the, 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 the money's been spent. Now it's reality. Now it's day by day. Now we're actually finding out what was written on their soul, what character was there. And oh, man, that was a shiny nose ring. But it turns out it was in the nose of a pig. And that charm deceived me. And the beauty has sort of passed away. Now one of us is in a wheelchair. Now it's worse and not better. Now it's sickness and not health. Now it's poorer and not richer. And now we're finding out what character is there. Now we're seeing their go-to addiction, their go-to vice. Feeling low, got to get drunk. Got to numb the feeling. Got to spend something. Now we're seeing how they handle conflict. It's they, they, they pull away. and re Now we're seeing what's really going on because the hot chemistry of the rom-com, is, is, it turns out it was a lie. Because every rom-com ends with them in bed. And, and it fades off into the sunset happily ever after. But the reality is when you make your relationship decisions based on a romantic comedy, your life will end up, as this story tells us, like a horror story. And so God has so much better for you, which is why he warns us. And so it's our duty to do our due diligence, knowing charm and beauty are deceitful so that we don't end up in the dangerous situation God doesn't want us to be in. Now I want to transition and switch gears a little bit and talk about how when you do the opposite of what Ahab did, when you do the opposite of getting tricked by charm, there is such a delight that God has prepared for you. Relationships become a surprising delight when you know not only all that's gold, not all that, that glitters is gold, but you also know the opposite of that, the flip of that. And that's that all that's gold does not glitter. Listen to me. It's important to know that not all the glitters is gold. So someone has, oh, look at that beautiful ring. But their nose is a pig nose. All right, cool. But, but the other side of it is true. What you might not describe as outwardly beautiful might be inwardly phenomenal. And, and what do I mean by that? I mean this. I mean, some of the people that might not be on the rigid standard of the list that you've composed, probably in part because of what our society has declared is beautiful. And you forget that there are so many 
different kinds of beautiful and shapes and races and, and backgrounds and ethnicities and to realize that true beauty is within, then you might newsflash all of a sudden realize that someone who isn't conforming to a shallow, superficial standard of beauty might actually make a tremendous husband and a phenomenal wife and be a man or woman of God who, surprise, surprise, is awesome to be around even when you're both old and ugly. Hello, right, to think about to think about what, what, what bigger than just your, your narrow, I'm 18 and I'm in my prime, or I'm 30, or I'm, I'm, I'm right, to actually go, hold on a second. What is it going to be like to raise a family with this person? What is it going to be like to be a grandparent with this person? That's what, that's what you should be thinking. What will it be like uh, to, to be 75 with this person? Or God forbid, if one of us is in a wheelchair or a hospital bed, to think about for better and not just, you know, for worse and not just for better, to think about poorer and not just for richer, and to think about what is life going to be like on the journey of worshiping God and serving him on the earth actually going to be like. There's a, there might be some incredible delight that you have as an epiphany when you realize there are some epic diamonds in the rough out there. And I, I was thinking about Hebrews 13, verse 2. It says, do not forget to entertain strangers. For by so doing, some people have entertained, have entertained angels without knowing it. Probably never been preached as a dating verse before. <laughs> but this came to my mind uh, because of the absolutely epic encounters that happened in the stories of Abraham and Lot, two Old Testament stories that he's referencing here, where it was the custom in that day, if you were in a town for the night passing through, there wasn't Motel 6s or you know, holiday inns back in the Old Testament. And so what you would do when you came to a town is you would go sit in the gate of the city, and you'd wait. And you were hoping that someone would practice the Middle Eastern hospitality that was the norm. And they would come to the gate of the city if they had a room, if they had space for it. And they would come and, and you could you know, negotiate. It was like old school Airbnb, y'all, right? <laughs> you, could, you could actually allow someone to come stay in your home. And it was agreed upon. There was things that dictated how long they could stay and, and what you would offer and, and all, all of the arrangements. Uh, but it, it was something that Abraham and Lot both did in the book of, of Genesis. And both times. And we don't know how many times they, they did it, probably a, a lifestyle for them. But um, two different occasions, they entertained strangers in their home, and they turned out to be angels on missions from God. Epic, right? Which they never would have experienced if they had just judged on, well, you're a stranger, I don't know you. But they got to know these people, and it was actually, at the end of the day, uh, an epic story of getting to be a part. All I'm trying to say is when, when you take off the shackles of culture and you know, this crush and this is how it's supposed to be and this is what it all looks like, and you actually say, like, like God, would you show me uh, how to see people how you see them and what's going on on the inside? And, and I, I begin to look for a, a woman who fears God. She shall be praised. A man of God, he shall be praised. There's, there's true strength that comes from that. And I'm not saying that physical looks don't matter. They, they, it does matter. It's good, it's, it's good and fine to like someone and to be attracted to someone. I'm just saying that's not the most important thing. I, I was thinking this week about that phrase, that expression, third time's a charm. It's funny when the things you just say, well, third time's a charm. You're like, why do you say that, right? I guess it goes back to the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and a belief and a superstition about that. And so that's why when you start your lawnmower the third time and it roars up, you third time's a charm. <laughs> Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? <laughs> but I just, I just like that, that, that charms later in the list. Third time's the charm. I'm not, I'm not saying the charm's unimportant. You do want to have some chemistry. Like you're going to be kissing. It's probably good if you like it, right? But that, that being said, let's push charm back a little bit. Let's not start with charm. Let's not lead with charm. Let's, let's lead with that person's got a great soul. That person is a kind person. That person's faithful. That person's generous. There's a, there's a compassion. That person does what they say they're going to do. Look at that person. That person's steadfast. They, they're, 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 that, that strength and, and those sorts of things. And, and let, let's push the charm back a little bit on the list. Come on, can we just do that together to just say, yeah, of course, it, it's awesome. Beauty's great. It's a gift while it lasts. Epic. We're all going to get crow's feet eventually. It's happening to us all. But, but let's be kind. Let's, let's, let's look for the beauty in others, and let's believe that there's going to be surprising moments along the way. I just, I just love that for years, Abraham and Sarah could be like, remember when we had angels in our house? That was awesome. 
that, that was rad. Because like, we brought them in. We didn't judge them at the external. And what they looked like wasn't angels. It was wrapped up in, in humility. It was ra- wrapped up in obscurity. But what was on the inside? Man, so you guys are like angels. Well, that's cool. <laughs> what do you serve an angel? You want more cornbread? Right? It's like, <laughs> and then Sarah's like coming out with the deviled eggs. And Abraham's like, no, 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 go, 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 go. It's inappropriate. I worked really hard this week on that joke. Went through so many revisions. I was going to say, like, deviled ham, but I went devil's food cake. Thought the deviled eggs was good. You really visualized it. <laughs> Angels on the inside. Some amazing, come on, single people. There's, there's some people that, that God has for you to, to look past what, what, um, what culture says it, the whole thing looks like and to really, to really believe that that spirit of hospitality, you're going you're gonna to really see some, some angels within. And, and now, if I could, uh, let me just encourage you to understand that you never can nor should you expect that, that from the curb you have any idea what's going on inside the house. Just challenge you for a second. How about Paul the Apostle? This guy is one of the most celebrated men of God who has ever lived. You know what his physical appearance was like? Unimpressive. He's, he admitted it. It was probably hard for me to even say, but he, the Corinthians, he knew that in the church they were being told his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive. We have one physical description of Paul that's handed down through history. It was from a man named Onesiphorus. 10 points for getting to say that name and not butcher it. Paul was a man of small stature with a bald head and crooked legs. He was in a good state of body with eyebrows meeting and nose somewhat hooked. Full of friendliness, though. For now he appeared like a man, and now he had the face of an angel. Apparently, when he really began to communicate, there was something just, there was an angel. I love it, though. If you'd have looked at Paul, not impressive. But as you listened to Paul, as you got to know Paul, face like an angel. Angels on the inside. Well, how about Jesus? I mean, what do you think Jesus looked like? You're like, I already know. Shepherd, sheep on the shoulders, sash, always the sash. <laughs> what was it with a sash? Like a beauty pageant, right? We have one physical description of Jesus that comes to us in an Old Testament prophecy. Before he ever arrived, Isaiah described what he was going to be like when he came. But because it's talking about Jesus, it was in the past tense. Because God, listen to me, can describe things he hasn't yet done in the past tense. That's because he can be so certain he's going to do them and no one can stop him that he can talk about them like they're already done. Let's just take a moment and thank God for being outside of time. So Isaiah 53, verse 2, which, by the way, is a detailed prophecy about the cross and about dying surrounded by the rich and, and being mocked as he died. This was all before crucifixion was even a thing. It says, he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. What was Jesus like physically without what they would say, beauty, without physical majesty, nothing in his appearance suggested desire. One translation says, when you saw Jesus, you didn't want to take a second look. He didn't inspire a double take, like, whoa, well, that guy's beautiful. He's a good looking guy. It was, it was unimpressive, like the Apostle Paul. On the inside, God. So let's push charm to the back, and let's, let's take a second look. Culture will put the pressure on you, especially this week, Valentine's Day, the whole thing, to lower your standards on the inside if someone's good enough looking on the outside. I'm suggesting we flip that script, that we lower uh, what we would we consider like our type, whatever that means, on a physical level to raise the bar should we find the majesty on the inside of God working in their heart, preciousness of spirit. And really believe that, that God has, and that, man, lowering the standard is not even the right way to describe that. More like raising the standard of looking for that inner beauty. 
and, 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 and to see inside of someone a beautiful soul. C.S. Lewis, and we'll end with this, talks about in his book, The Weight of Glory, how differently we should look at one another than the way the world does. And, and this, at this point in the sermon, I do want to open it up and broaden it out a little bit, because we've been pretty narrowly on that. We've been at coffee talking about, hey, how do you pick someone to marry, right? We've just been just talking a little bit. Um, now let's open it up for us all. And, and let's just talk about how not only are we going to let people in our lives in a way that they're going to speak into our lives, but let's also remember that God has sent us to be in this world to be in other people's lives. We're going to carefully guard our circle, right? Let's not let an Ahab in. Let's not let a Jezebel into an influential position in our life to where they're going to cause us to pull our allegiance from God to other things. But now let's remember that we're on mission. And the moment this weekend ends and we've had our time worshiping God together, we're going into a world of hurting people. And as we do, we're there to be an influence and to be an impact and to, to show love and to show light, to be salt and to be light in the world. So yes, on the, and, and if you're like, man, there's tension in all this. There's always tension in it. There's always tension in it. Anything, any, don't trust any pat answer. So there's a tension to, I don't want to be influenced, but I also want to use the influence God's given me. And so in that, I wanted to close with this that profoundly impacted me when I first read it. He writes, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature, which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. How will we act? How will we live if we truly believe that every single person we meet is an immortal being made in the image of God? that he intends to be unleashed to reflect his image purely and perfectly back. I think there will, like he says, not be any smugness. There will not be any flippancy, no superiority. But there will be empathy. We'll try and connect with people, relate to people, see people where they are, be, be fully present with people and engaged and, and care. And we can actually truly believe that God can use us to help them release their angel on the inside. Amen. Amen.